This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rabkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Sarah Manguso, author of seven books, including The Two Kinds of Decay, Ongoingness, and most recently, 300 Arguments, a nonfiction work that presents 300 short arguments for the reader to consider. The work is made up of short pieces that run from one line to 13 lines long, each containing at least one idea worth thinking about before moving on to the next one. They are akin to aphorisms you can linger over, but there is an overall connection in the work. We began the interview discussing how Manguso wanted people to read 300 Arguments. It is definitely a a coherent work. It's not simply a collection of 300 much smaller coherent works. Uh, I guess the one, the one strong belief that I have about it, uh, the form of it, and I guess in a way the approach to reading it, is that the 300 arguments, those 300 components are not fragments. They are, they are units, um, complete in themselves, and they collect, they they accumulate and create something different, something bigger. So obviously there's some themes that come out throughout it. I noticed there was sort of a tension and a resistance, a stubbornness and nakedness, a difference between dreams and waking, some some real musings about failure and writing about writing. I know that there are so many others as well, but Am I on the right track? And what would you say if there were themes, what would they be for you? The first thing I should say is that I, I love I love your list. And I think it's uh, I think it's it, it's it's telling um, I it, it when people give these short lists of what they see in the book, they indicate to me the parts that were the most engaging or the most interesting and so far, there's really not a lot of overlap, and I find that very thrilling. Um, I certainly don't know everything that's in the book. If I, you know, if I, if I felt that I had complete control over the entire subject, then I think I would have been bored with the material before I actually finished writing it. I will say though that there were originally seven sections that helped me put the book into order. And once the book was in order, I found that I didn't need the sections anymore, but I don't mind sharing what they were. In order, they are self, others, desire, art, work, failure, and death. And as you read it, um, you know, perhaps some of them will, will create a larger wave and sort of make, make themselves known out of, the, out of the whole ocean of the book. But within each section, there are these smaller waves too. And I wouldn't argue that each of the seven sections is equally loud uh, as all of the others, or even equally long. I don't, I don't remember exactly where each one starts or finishes. They all sort of blended. Once, once I could no longer see the book in sections, once it appeared to me as just one sort of unbreakable piece, that's when I knew it was done. It sounds like you you definitely shifted the order, and I wanted to ask you about how you did order them. I'm assuming you didn't write them in order and that you just wrote them over time and must have manipulated them a lot, almost like a collage. 
that is how the book came to find the form that it's in now. I started writing the arguments as a kind of side project, although even to call it a project makes it sound more formal than it was in the beginning. In the beginning, I was just kind of taking moments away from this this other book that I was writing about um, whiteness and hate in Boston. It, it, it's if, if it sounds vague, it's because it is. I've been taking notes toward this book for at least the last 10 or 15 years. And I had these small, complete thoughts, which I now see were a kind of antidote to the really vague open-endedness that I was having to deal with every day as I worked on the Boston book. And so they accumulated exactly as you suggest. They accumulated in no particular order. Sometimes they came quickly. Uh, Sometimes I went quite a bit, uh, quite a number of days between writing one and writing another. And it was when I had about a couple of hundred of them that I realized I could maybe make something out of them. I could maybe make something uh, like a long essay. I wasn't thinking about it like a book yet. And so I thought I would try to get to 300. And getting from 100 to 200 was still pretty pleasurable. I mean, it still just kind of felt like goofing off. But getting to 300 felt different. And once I decided which were going to be the 300 that I was going to retain. Um, there were many more. I, I'd never actually counted exactly uh, the number that I accumulated, but I, it was at least four, 430, 440. Once I had those 300, I was extremely resistant, um, very characteristically, extremely resistant to putting them in any kind of order because any kind of order to me felt arbitrary. And so I actually had them in alphabetical order for a very long time. I was really dragging my feet. It seemed to me that um, all of these uh, well-meaning and ultimately um, right-thinking readers who were telling me, you know, you, you really can't just keep it in alphabetical order. There has to be some sort of governing principle, getting people from the beginning to the end. Um, you know, it, I could not deal with putting 300 things in order But once I separated them into the seven sections, it was possible to deal with maybe 40 or 50 of them at once. And once I felt I could contain 40 or 50 of them in a manageable, um, you know, I even hesitate to say arc, but a manageable process to get from the beginning of a section to the end of a section, I then became, I kind of calmed down enough to be able to consider thinking about the way the sections interplayed with each other. And then, you know, very last, I I became finally able to think about these 300 things as occupying one shared order. And so you know, I will say that I, I, I wrote the 300 components of it relatively quickly, but I put them in order what seemed like incredibly slowly and painstakingly and painfully. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Sarah Manguso, author of seven books, including 300 Arguments. One thing that struck me when I was reading it is on page 78, you write, my entire childhood was spent accompanying my parents to swap meets, yard sales, junk shops, and the dump. 
At a flea market, I found a worn silver signet ring already engraved with my initials. Maybe someone wore it her whole life. The dealer sold it to me by weight. And I was thinking that there was, maybe this was meta and maybe it wasn't, but that this whole book was kind of the treasures that you find maybe at a swap meet. And I'm wondering if you ever thought of it like that. You know, I, I might have. There is another one that's similar to that, that 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 I think is more easily referential. And it's the one about um, the stones of a ruin. I don't have the book in front of me, but um, I, it goes something like, think of these as the stones of a ruin. Um, you know, maybe there, maybe nobody arranged them at all, but that one ends, but I was here. That one, I was, I was very much aware that in talking about a ruin, it was impossible not to refer to the book, but actually that swap mate one, I don't think I was really as, uh, consciously thinking about it as, as referencing the book as an object. But now that you mention it, there are probably several more in which I didn't really exactly know, you know how how um, relevant it is in in you know providing a key to understanding the book. Well, I think it's just interesting too, just because of the influence that your childhood has on you. That if this is true, that your parents really brought you to those places, that maybe there's something wired into your brain where you're sort of picking out the best of all the stimuli in front of you. That is probably true. I do feel like a magpie, just collecting and gathering and collecting and sorting and getting rid of stuff and you know keep it, keeping the shiniest things for myself. I'd like to ask you about the first and the last, just if, if, if it's worth it to you to talk about why you put it first and the last. The, the first and last arguments in the book are, I think, a little bit self-conscious about being the first one and being the last one, and they do kind of refer to themselves. They kind of salute themselves and announce, you know, that, okay, this is, this is the first of 300. It's, it's the beginning, and it's about beginnings. So the first one, a great photographer insists on writing poems. A brilliant essayist insists on writing novels. A singer with a voice like an angel insists on singing only her own terrible songs. So when people tell me I should try to write this or that thing, I don't want to write. I know what they mean. And then, you might as well start by confessing your greatest shame. Anything else would just be exposition. Yeah, those those did feel relatively early on that they should be situated somewhere near the beginning. And they are in a way referring to this other book that the entire almost the entire time I I was working on 300 arguments I was purportedly trying to write and this was this was a big book you know I I had this idea I was very attracted to the idea of writing a longer book at this point in my career and there were there were again well-meaning people who were suggesting you know it's it's time to write a long book it's time to write a, a you know a proper essay collection let's it's time to go over 200 pages come on and uh, you know of course I wrote this book instead and uh, the the sort of lingering disappointment at not having written the Boston book or not having produced the Boston book yet colored so much of what I was thinking about while I was composing the 300 arguments that I thought I had to include it. And so then when you get to the end, the last thing you write is perfect happiness is the privilege of deciding when things end, but then you have to find a new happiness. 
And I want to talk about that. But I also want to talk about there was another one you wrote in here about how the last word, all last words are the same. They're followed by silence. So I'm wondering if you were thinking about that one, too. There were so many versions of the book, and I, and I don't I don't uh, save drafts or, or, you know, alternate versions of what I work on. I, I just have the one file on my hard drive. So I can't, you know, I can't go back and, you know, like an archivist and tell you at what point, you know, the ending became the ending. I think, though, that the one about last words, I ultimately decided was a little bit too self-referential to appear at the end. And um, I was satisfied with the amount of self-awareness, I guess, the that 300th one in the book actually has. A, a little but not too much. One of my favorite ones, you were writing about one-hit wonders. I don't know why it was my favorite, but there was such a compassion involved in that. And here's what it said. It said, respect the one-hit wonder, not for his one hit, but for all the days he must have suffered afterward, trying for another. Can you just talk about that one? Oh, sure. I, I think many of these came out of conversations with people in which I disagreed fundamentally with something that someone else said, but I couldn't quite, I couldn't quite articulate it in the moment. You know, there's that French idea, the l'esprit de l'escalier. It's, you know, as you're going down the stairs after having the conversation, it's that's the moment at which you think of the great line. And in a way, many, you know, I'd say the majority of this book is composed of such lines um, that I, that came to me that I, you know, laboriously wrote after the fact. But uh, we were talking about one hit wonders. I, I think it was just the the very the very phrase one hit wonder is so insulting and demeaning to somebody who made a hit. You know, like making even one hit is just, it's so rare. And we're so lucky to have these hits. I think, you know, now, now that I'm, now that I think about it, it must have been about, um, you know, 80s pop stars, which is, which is what I think immediately uh, one thinks of when, when one hears one hit wonder, because there are so many, um, you know, deeply appreciative, uh, like pieces of media about the one hit wonders of the 80s. And I wanted to find a way to just articulate the suffering that I imagined such a one-hit wonder must have had after, after everything that comes when when a hit, when a hit happens, and then going the entire rest of your life. I mean, certainly, I can imagine such a, a musician or such a person kind of like going widely on and never needing to try to make anything else ever again. But I think it's much more likely that every one of these people was, you know, forever trying to become known as anything but just like a one a one hit wonder. And it's, it seemed like a, it seemed a very tragic figure, not not at all like a heroic or a triumphant figure at all. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Sarah Manguso, author of seven books, including 300 Arguments. So another thing that was interesting to me about this, I think that there's an image in society that it's not ladylike to hold grudges or it's not ladylike to show your fury. And in some of these, you really showed your fury and your anger that you couldn't let go on, let go of. One was a woman who lied ab about a rumor of someone that you slept with. And another one was looking maybe at a compliment rather than an insult. And I'm wondering if you could talk about um, this idea of, of showing 
your fury and your grudges. Um, I think there was another one about a man who had really bad luck in life and you had wished it on him when he was young. I, I, I have never in my entire adult life thought about whether or not I should be ladylike. Um, and so I, I, I feel quite quite free from the the conflict that you suggest there. But, you know, of course, I am aware that it is it, it's not it's not nice to um, reveal that 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 one holds a grudge or that one maybe even enjoys holding a grudge a little bit. And so with the ones that uh, that that, you know, betray these, um, you know, these bad behaviors or these bad qualities, I wasn't just wanting to uh you know, to, to show something. I, I also wanted to try to articulate something about grudges in general or, or about fury or about, um, you know, the, the uses of shame that a, a writer can, can make of it. It's been very useful to me to be aware of what exactly shames me or, or what exactly I feel guilty about or what exactly I regret or what, or, you know, who, whom I hate and why that, that is my material. You know, if you, if you, uh, you know, all, all of my other books are really quite similar. I, I'm really just examining the feelings that I'm having and, and trying to, trying to understand more than just what I'm feeling. Well, tell me about your commitment to your own life. You, you talk about one about the greatest commitments to experience in life, you know, with no end points that include friendship and marriage and parenthood and one's own life. And some people might not be lucky enough to have a friend or to be married or to be a parent, but everybody has their own life. And I'm just wondering your, your thoughts about, about your life and, and what your commitment to your life is. And have you seen that change over time from when you were a pianist to a writer to a mother and if that's a, you know, the idea that you don't know the end. The idea that I don't know the end is just, it's thrillingly frustrating. And I guess as I get older, it, it feels more thrilling than frustrating. Um, I, I like to try to be very organized and efficient because I often feel overwhelmed by the amount of information that's coming at me simply from being alive. And, you know, to, to like, there's, if you take that to its like most extreme, um, end to its logical conclusion, if I were to be maximally organized and efficient, I would know exactly what day I would die. And I would like make sure my house was clean that day, you know, and like I would have all of my things in order and I, you know, I have maybe a lurid interest and curiosity about um, deaths that happen and after which the, the deceased person's belongings are found to just be in like wild disarray and, you know, like a half finished painting and, you know, like a, you know, dirty refrigerator with all kinds of leftover. Well, I, I think it's probably rare to find people who are going to be ready when they die. But I will say that my parents are doing a, a, a sort of terrifyingly good job getting rid of a lot of the stuff that they've accumulated over their lives. They are 76 years old and they're not in poor health, anything like that. But they seem to have, although we never really talk about it, you know, 
we never really call it by its name, but they do seem to be very intent on really having all of their affairs in order. And so in my imagination, I'm thinking like, they're just going to like sweep the last room of their apartment and like put everything away. And then they're going to go lie down and, and like, and then they're going to think, okay, it's all done. We can go now. (laughs) And, you know, maybe there's like a a Freudian element of my, um, you know, thinking about this or even articulating it in those terms. But, um, you know, to be committed to one's own life, you have to be all, you have to be all in. I mean, to, to really, it was, there are all of these truisms about, you know, how, what it is to really live. And I'm not going to try to reproduce them here, but you being all in means being all in for an experience that you have no idea how long, you know, you have no idea of its length. Like it could, it could all end tomorrow if, uh, you know, if if our dictator president just kind of lets all of the missiles go or, you know, I, we maybe you and I will make it to relatively old and, and like that's a whole other experience. And I, I just find that a fascinating situation to be in. And as you said, everybody's in it. Everybody who who is alive is experiencing that that very conundrum. Although, you know, I think most normal people probably don't consider it a conundrum. They just kind of are well-adjusted. Um, but it's the same way with a marriage. And it's the same way with any relationship with another person. Like, you don't know when one of you is going to die. And you don't know which one is going to die first. And you don't know, you know, there, and yet you have to be all in as though it's all going to last forever. I find that endlessly fascinating and worrying. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Sarah Manguso, author of seven books, including 300 Arguments. Tell me about your theory regarding sad sex. There are two kinds of people, those who can't perform the act when they're sad and those perform it only to escape sadness. I have a theory that the second kind of person lives longer. I have known uh, a few people in my life who have lived um, past 100 or almost to 100. And oddly, they were, they were, there are three men that I'm thinking of. And they all were or are horny to the very end. Um, you know, either by specifically, um, you know, specifically alluding to the fact that they were, you know, still desirous of sexual release, or you could just tell being around them that they're like, they're, they're still hot. And I have known some people who were, you know, much younger, but, you know, the ability to, um, I mean, I guess specifically for a man, but maybe not, maybe, maybe I'm not just talking about men. Well, well, I was thinking about men when I, when I wrote that and I've known men who, uh, were just good to go at all times. And I've known men who need to feel, you know, at least mostly good first before, you know, initiating. And it seems that the ones who are able to just sort of, you know, put, put, put their cares aside and have a kind of skill of general utility, which is to just, you know, not be (laughs) overwhelmingly, um, you know, pressured and depressed by their feelings. And, yeah, so my my theory is that if you're able to do that, then you're you probably have this ability to 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 stay healthier and and happier 
longer. But yeah, I haven't, I haven't, I haven't really done any research. This is all based on anecdotal reports. Another thing that I'm curious about in the book was you sort of, I felt like time and all of yourselves were exposed um, throughout, meaning you talk about your fifth grade self, you talk about the self that, um, the guy that you had sex with for the first time, you talk about motherhood, and, and you make a reference in one of these that sort of tied a lot of that together for me, or I found interesting, was that you were talking about all your different selves. And I was just wondering about, a little bit about that, about how you look at that in your own life. It, it sort of reminds me of your commitment to your own life, but um, we do have so many different people people within us and you said you said I'd like to meet someone whose passage through life has been continuous whose life has happened to an essential self and not just a series of lives happening to a series of selves I still feel that way so much I you know and and I know that I you know I have the same organs as I did when I was born but uh, I really feel as if there have been these thresholds that I've crossed after which I was a new person. And sometimes it was like, you know, a, a, a process taking a certain duration of time. And, and sometimes it was like, you know, a moment after which I was never the same. But uh, I, I'm, I'm interested in the idea of this sort of like broken uh, sequence of like segmented selves, because obviously that's not what's happening. You know, I'm, I'm the same body. I, I get up and I go to bed and I get up and I go to bed and I'm the same body and the same body. And you know, I, I sleep, but I'm still the same body when I wake up. It, it just doesn't feel that way. Does it feel that way for anybody? I, and I'm, I'm wondering, I, I, I have a suspicion that maybe everybody feels the way that I do, but I might not be right about that. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you as a writer that might've influenced you? Yes, I'm going to read a passage from The Bluest Eye. It's the uh, preface to The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison. Here is the house. It is green and white. It has a red door. It is very pretty. Here is the family. Mother, father, Dick and Jane live in the green and white house. They are very happy. See Jane. She has a red dress. She wants to play. Who will play with Jane? See the cat. It goes meow meow. Come and play. Come play with Jane. The kitten will not play. See, mother. Mother is very nice. Mother, will you play with Jane? Mother laughs. Laugh, mother, laugh. See, father. He is big and strong. Father, will you play with Jane? Father is smiling. Smile, father, smile. See the dog. Bow, wow, goes the dog. Do you want to play with Jane? See the dog run. Run, dog, run. Look, look. Here comes a friend. The friend will play with Jane. They will play a good game. Play, Jane, play. And I I chose this passage because it does something that a lot of my favorite literature does and that I'm always trying to do in my own work, which is it omits crucial information, but it alludes to the information obliquely and clearly enough that it kind of looms in the background. Um, the, this passage actually includes that same text three times, first punctuated normally and uh, second with no punctuation at all, and then in the third iteration, it's, it's set as all one word. There are no word spaces. And so the experience of reading it is, 
uh, you know, it, it kind of, it speeds up and it becomes more desperate. And you, 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 you come to suspect that the narrator who is enunciating all of this is doing it so that she will not say or think about something else. And that something else is the horrific narrative that the novel then recounts. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Sarah Manguso, author of seven books, including 300 Arguments. Can you read something that you wrote? Maybe it changed from the first draft or something you liked, how it turned out? I wanted to read the first page of 300 Arguments. A great photographer insists on writing poems. A brilliant essayist insists on writing novels. A singer with a voice like an angel insists on singing only her own terrible songs. So when people tell me I should try to write this or that thing I don't want to write, I know what they mean. You might as well start by confessing your greatest shame. Anything else would just be exposition. It can be worth foregoing marriage for sex, and it can be worth foregoing sex for marriage. It can be worth foregoing parenthood for work, and it can be worth foregoing work for parenthood. Every case is orthogonal to all the others. That's the entire problem. I chose this page because it, it took a very long time to become the first page. And as I mentioned, many of the arguments were written sort of on the side while I was pretending to write a different book. And they accumulated pretty quickly. And it was, it was a pleasure um, to write them. It didn't feel like work. It felt like the fun that I was having instead of doing my actual work. And so composing them willy-nilly in no particular order was easy and fast and pleasurable. But choosing the 300 that appear in the book, and especially, as I mentioned, putting them in order, took many hours of close attention, and it felt like work, and it was an experience full of doubt and frustration and not knowing and I like the, I, I'm, I'm pleased with the first page of the book. There are a few pages of the book that I particularly like. The first page is one of them. And so I, I'm happy that it's, a, it's an artifact of a lot of work that isn't necessarily visible. It just sort of, be, it became itself. And once, once it kind of cohered, once, once I chose those first three, I couldn't imagine the first page being anything else. Where do you write? everywhere and nowhere. Lately, I've been working well on planes. I wrote a poem on the plane home from a conference this weekend. But I, as I mentioned, I, I don't have a regular writing practice. I, ha I have um, too many other responsibilities right now with work and family. And, um, you know, any, anything that isn't related to putting out an immediate fire uh, is, is kind of pushed to the very far back burner but I've learned to become a lot more a lot less precious about the circumstances under which I write and I can write on my phone I can write on a slip of paper I you know any room any place in the car it's it's all fine um, at some point I would like to pass over to a, another a, a, a later stage during which I have fewer responsibilities and I can sit down for longer stretches of time. But for better or worse, I, I don't have that right now. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I, I, 
I don't need to get away from writing. I, <laughs> I need to get away from my family. I need to get away from my other responsibilities so I can do any writing at all. Um, thinking about, you know, trying to prepare something for this question was, um, I, I really like this question. It's very interesting. I, mean, it, I had to, I had to think about my whole life and remember when I have needed to get away from writing. And I will say that I think the only time in my life when I really needed to get away from writing was during my first year of graduate school when I had no responsibilities other than writing. I had a fellowship. I didn't have to teach. And I, you know, I was, I was really unprepared for living that way. It happened very suddenly, you know, the, the, you know, month before I had had all of these little jobs and was just kind of scrambling. And, and so when I finally had all of this freedom and all of this time, and I really did need to get away from writing or I would go mad, I did anything else. I, I, I made sculptures. It's the only time in my life that I made sculptures. I sang, I, I hiked, I volunteered at the hospital, I went swimming, I screwed around, took pills, I went nuts. I, um, yeah, yeah, so, so during that time when I really needed to get away from writing, I, I, I did anything to get away from it. And now it's closer to something like an opposite situation. And who do you show your, your work to first to get feedback? It depends on the piece and it depends specifically on what the piece needs. So I, I have what I like to think of as like a well curated tool chest. If it needs to be funnier, I send it to one person. If it needs to be clearer, I send it to another. If it needs to be, um, if it needs, if it needs work in a sort of like general structural narrative way, I show it to somebody else. Uh, there isn't one person who gets, you know, gets the, the first look at everything. I mean, it, it, it is, um, you know, we're all busy and I usually, when I, when I send stuff around now, it's because I have like a specific question. Um, although that question could also be, is, is this a piece of writing or is this, you know, is this, is this like a, a proto something, something, um, is this a piece of writing or is this just something I should put away? How have you dealt with rejection? When I was starting out, I would just send poems to every, every little magazine I saw anywhere. And when rejections came, they usually came with, with clear information about the kind of work they would rather publish. And it was a while before I, I caught on, but Editors are, editors want to be very clear about what they do and don't want. That you know, it's in their interest for you not to keep sending everything, to, you know, everything out willy nilly. And once I caught on to that, I I don't send my work out unless I think it's a good match for where I'm sending it. And I still get rejected, of course, but I I also understand now that like 99% of the time it just isn't personal. Or, and, and it also might mean that they just ran something very similar to it. And, you know, editors are curators, too. It's not just like, you know, maybe you sent it in the wrong year. Like they had they had like, you know, just there, there are too many poems about cicadas suddenly and they they just can't take yours, even though it's quite good. I mean, I, it, it, I see that it, it's more complicated. Rejection isn't really like a personal rejection. 
outside of the uh, outside of a professional realm. Now that that's a much more difficult type of rejection to deal with, and um, I think I would I would sound much less together if I had to answer that question. And what is your favorite word? I hope you'll forgive me, but I have no idea how to answer that question. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Sarah Manguso, author of seven books, including 300 Arguments. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.